Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. We have now turned the corner. I am just starting here our seven edi- seventh edition, chapter seven of my book, Help My Marriage Has Grown Cold. I have been working with Mabel through six counseling sessions. All of that is archived for you, and I hope that you check it out. If you're just dropping in, please take advantage on this long-form case study that I have been working through. If you want the free book, go to our store. It's titled Help. My marriage has grown cold, and you'll be able to download that free digital book. And, of course, you can read all the way through the case study. I trust you will benefit from it personally as well as use it in any kind of training or discipleship that you may be doing. At this point in in Mabel's counseling, she has turned the corner. She has worked through a number of personal issues, and so now it's time for her to be focusing on her marriage, specifically how to serve her husband through his porn addiction, which was the original reason that uh, Mabel came to counseling. Now, she's not going to stop self-counseling. She will be continuing to meet with someone. She will continue to grow through various issues that she has learned and now is applying to her life. But there is a pivot point here in chapter seven of this book, Help My Marriage Has Grown Cold. The title of it is Working on Marriage Alone. And so if you want to read the article on the website, go to uh, lifeovercoffee.com and you can read all nine of these articles. There are nine audios, podcasts, and nine videos as well. As I've said before, I am extrapolating a little bit more in the actual podcast and the video rather than doing just a straight read of the text that is in the book. So I want you to benefit from all the resources tied to this case study, including getting that free digital download at our store at lifeovercoffee.com. But let's work through chapter seven as we are now at a pivot point and she's going to start focusing on her marriage in addition to her own ongoing sanctification. When a marriage grows cold and only one spouse is willing to work on it, that spouse has to juxtapose two biblical responsibilities. One of those is being free in Christ while working on the marriage alone for the advancement of the gospel. And so those two things have to be true in that order. And the reason it is essential to know what it means and to actually live in an authentic freedom in Christ, because if we're going to advance the gospel, we cannot be managed by the things that are going to be come back, that are going to come back to us, particularly any kind of resistance or any kind of personal challenges as we try to share the gospel broadly. In Mabel's case, she's going to try to share the gospel with her husband. And of course, there is going to be some pushback. There's a lot of water under the bridge. There's sin on both sides. And so there will be certain amounts of conflict. And so it will be essential for Mabel to be free in Christ, to be stabilized in Christ so that she can focus rightly on the marriage for the advancement of the gospel in the marriage while not being managed by whatever may happen as far as repercussions per chance that Biff is not cooperating and the chances of him cooperating at this point will be slim. 
And so she has to juxtapose these two biblical responsibilities, to be free in Christ while working on the marriage alone for the advancement of the gospel. Now, there's a text here in Philippians 1.12 that is important, and I would encourage Mabel to reflect upon it. And this is Paul talking while he was in prison. This is what he was saying. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And so you can hear the freedom that he has in Christ while in prison. And that is a profound thought. Reminds me also of Joseph, that he was incarcerated for a certain amount of time in Egypt. Of course, he was completely uprooted to Egypt for the rest of his life. And so you could say he had a life prison sentence, but Joseph was actually free in Egypt because he understood what it meant to be sovereignty-centered, even in a context of conflict. And like Paul, Mabel will have to learn the same thing as she juxtaposed poses these two biblical responsibilities. Think about your own life. If we are not free in Christ and managed by Christ, then we will be managed by our circumstances. But if we are in an autonomous posture, free before God, managed by God, free in Christ, then we can take the gospel out to our spheres of influence. And then whatever the reactions are, especially the adverse reactions. The gospel can still go forward in an unhindered and uninterrupted way because, again, we are not managed by whatever their reactions may be. And so this is the place where I wanted Mabel to eventually get to. But first, she had to get her relationship with God right, meaning stabilized, so that she experienced a freedom in the gospel to where she was not manipulated by her own fear, her own anger, or her own ignorance. Three things that I've dealt with in the last two segments of this ongoing case study. And so Mabel has to have a firm grip on the gospel and how it could free her in the prison of her marriage. And you remember when she first came to the counseling session, she said that in lesson number one. She said, I saw singleness as a, a short-term prison sentence, but I knew that it was there was a finality to it, uh, that it was only a season. But now I have gone from the prison of singleness short-term to the long-term prison of marriage. And so she sees her marriage as a prison, and in some ways she is absolutely right. Now, a lot of that had to do with her own reasoning. It had to do with her relationship with God. It had to do with her blowing through the red lights and knocking over some construction barrels in order to get to the altar because she intuitively knew that this was not the right person for her to marry, but she did it anyway. God in his mercy has now blown it up and he has outed Biff in his pornography, which that is something that has to be dealt with, but it has really brought heat to um, Mabel's life to where now she is recognizing that I can't do this anymore. I need my relationship with Christ right and she has done that now, and so she is more stabilized in God than she has ever been before, and so she is experiencing freedom in Christ. And as we experience that freedom in Christ, then we're no longer under the management of other people. By the way, obviously Jesus was the greatest example of that. 
He was unmanipulatable. And even when people were not uh, cooperating, even when people were resisting him, the gospel, Jesus was so free in God, in his relationship with God, that it liberated him to communicate in any way that, sh- that he needed to communicate in order to advance the gospel. Paul was the same way. Sometimes Paul would write with great compassion. Sometimes Paul would write in a confrontational way. But again, it wasn't about who he was writing to. It was about who he was in Christ. And Mabel's going to need that because sometimes she will need to be compassionate and patient with Biff. Other times she needs to rebuke him and confront him because of his sin. But if she is managed or manipulated by him, she will not be able to do that. But that is the good news of where she is at this point. She is experiencing freedom in Christ. Now she can juxtapose that with the advancement of the gospel within her spheres of influence. And of course, Biff is the first stop of the train as far as her taking the gospel out to her spheres. She needs to take the gospel to him in a very practical way, meaning she needs to counsel and disciple her husband, hoping that God would grant repentance so that he can be free as she is in the gospel. And so Mabel needed to know that she could walk in the Savior's step with supernatural joy, regardless of the future state of her marriage. And so I was offering Mabel freedom inside of her marital covenant, which meant, of course, that she would stay in her marriage, which she was glad to do. If we live in such a way that the gospel is why we do what we do, then we are well on our way to a proper understanding and application of the gospel in our spheres of influence. Well, Mabel is now properly motivated and situated in the gospel, and her freedom continues to unfold. And so she's in that position, as Paul talked about, living in the good of the gospel. She can do that too. I want to give you a list, and a list of examples. It's an eclectic list Talking about how the gospel situates us, it situates our motives while giving us the impetus to advance the gospel practically in the lives of others. This worldview is what I call living in the good of the gospel. And again, this is an eclectic list, but as you listen to it, I would love for you to examine yourself as it applies to the various relationships in your life to see how free you are in the gospel and by being situated in it, how you're able now to advance the gospel in the lives of your friends. For example, a gospel-motivated person will serve an undeserving spouse. I'm not controlled by the shenanigans in your life. You don't deserve the grace that I am providing for you, but neither did I. The gospel has motivated me, and the grace that I have received from God, I'm going to pour out to you regardless of how you respond to me. The gospel-motivated person will serve an undeserving spouse. Number two, the gospel-motivated person will ask others for forgiveness. Because they're free in Christ, they're not caving to the fear of man. They're not fearing a person's rejection or acceptance. They're not craving a person's respect. They are free in the gospel, and so they know what the gospel means as far as its advancement. And so when they commit a sin, hey, 
My freedom allows me to ask for forgiveness, and I don't feel any kind of punitive weight from God or you. I can just simply ask you for forgiveness when I sin. Number three, a gospel-motivated person will forgive others because, again, they understand the mercy that has been exhibited to them. And so they're so free in Christ that they can advance the gospel by extending forgiveness when it is requested. Number four, A gospel-motivated person will work for the glory of God. Whatever their hand finds to do, they will do it with God's fame, God's name, God's glory in view. They're so free in Christ. They're so appreciative of what God has done for them that when they do their work, they don't procrastinate. They aren't lazy. They do it for the glory of God because the gospel is motivating them. Number five, the gospel-motivated person will think the best of others. They will always try to overlook sin. They will always consider other people with the utmost charity. That is their starting point because they recognize that the log is in their eye and everything else is speck fishing. They recognize that they have been forgiven an immense debt before God. They're thinking about the gentleman in Matthew 18 who the master had forgiven so much and thus they want to have mercy on others as mercy has been extended to them. The gospel-motivated person will ask more questions than accuse people. They recognize that they are not omniscient, that they don't know everything, and God has extended grace to them as, as as God has helped them to walk through various situations, and so they want to be gracious and patient, asking questions, trying to be a learner as they encourage others to grow in Christ. The gospel-motivated person will be an encourager, not a discourager, because they know that it was the kindness of God that led to their repentance, and now they're motivated to be kind to others as God has been kind to them. And then the gospel-motivated person will seek courageous mentors. They know that God has many means of grace and many benefits that could accrue to them, but they want to humble themselves and seek those people who are wiser because they're not trying to, um, to, to protect any kind of reputation. So with humility, they seek those because they want to grow, and so they ask questions seeking for that kind of help. Uh, Two more. A gospel-motivated person loves to serve others because, well, as Christ said in 1045 of Mark, I didn't come here to be served, but I came here to serve. And then the gospel-motivated person expresses gratitude to others because they recognize what has been extended to them. This is quite the eclectic list of some of the, the personality traits and and some of the things that we do because we have been affected rightly by the gospel, motivated by the person and work of Christ, and so we want to imitate Him free from anybody's shenanigans, never measuring how people will respond to these things that I've said here. We just do them because we want to advance the gospel, but that's because we're motivated by it. And this is where Mabel is. I think it would be great for you to take this list in this chapter, and again, this is chapter 7, is titled, Working on Marriage Alone. And you take this list, run through the test, and see how well you can do these things, can exhibit these attitudes, words, and behaviors in your life to other people as you advance the gospel. And the more freedom that you have to do that without any fear of repercussion, it will speak to the freedom that you have in Christ. Well, Mabel is ready to model these gospel attitudes and more. This was a short list, not exhaustive. In her life, 
especially Biff. As she looks at her concentric circles of, of her spheres of influence, obviously Biff is the next person on her list, the most immediate person in her life, the reason that she came to counseling, and of course she loves him. And rather than running from God by choosing her way, Mabel recognizes how God is working in her even during her suffering. And so now she is ready to go to advance the gospel specifically in this unique person. His name is Biff. She started to see her suffering not so much as something happening to her, but as something that God was doing in her. And this is something that I was saying earlier. When something like what Biff was doing happens to us, it's, it's easy to fixate and focus on what the individual was doing and thinking about how awful that is. And we can become problem-centered if we're not careful. What we want to do is to reorient our minds as quickly as possible so that the problem is on the bottom of the parallel and sovereignty is on top as we live inside that parallel. And if suffering is, if sovereignty is driving us, suffering will not. And if sovereignty is driving us, then we will see the redemptive purposes in the suffering. As Joseph said, what you meant was for evil because he was so sovereignty centered, he realized what God meant for good. Well, now Mabel, who came and was complaining about God, she was complaining about Biff. She was complaining about the regret that she was carrying, knowing that she married the wrong person, according to her. Well, now all that narrative has flipped. She has positioned herself to understand and embrace her marriage problems because of her growing awareness and application of the gospel to her personal life. Admitting that God was doing something in her was more than a courtesy nod or a wave of the wand. It's absolutely sobering. We don't go into Christian speak when we talk about what God is doing in us and how he's flipping the narrative of our lives, when we come to that place to where that is genuinely true for us, that we legitimately see that God is doing a good work here. What Biff was doing with his porn addiction was absolutely evil. It was atrocious. It was devastating. It was traumatic. And any other hyperbolic word that you want to attach to it it was devastating to her soul. But as she began to reorient her life with a, a gospel fixation, fixation, not only was she seeing what Biff was doing as a means of grace to help Biff to grow, change, repent, but she saw it as an opportunity recognizing that her theology was askew and her orthopraxy was upside down. And now she's seeing that suffering being used as a means of grace to change her operation as far as her theology and her psychology, her psyche. At times, she admitted that this new awareness and acceptance of God is frightening, and you're going to experience that from time to time. It is somewhat of a roller coaster ride. Even Job, in the middle of his book, when he began to think of God, he, he trembled and he, he feared, but he recalibrated himself, saying, that, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And so to be to be afraid during these moments where the tectonic plates of your sanctification are realigning themselves, that is normal. 
Often in our suffering, and Mabel did this early on, we can focus on the wrong question. I touched on this a couple of chapters back, that we can be more concerned about whether God is safe than whether He is good. And same with being sovereignty-centered versus problem-centered. We need to make sure that the goodness of God is driving our minds more than this desire we have for safety. Because sometimes God would put us in unsafe positions because He wants to bring us to a position of weakness. This is what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 12 when he felt the unsafety of a harassing thorn, a minister of, of the devil. And he asked God, to take this away because this is not safe. But God was telling him that I have to bring you to a position of weakness because it's only through your weakness that my strength can be perfected in you. And so we must make sure that if we understand and recognize and appreciate and truly believe that God is good, those moments when things do not feel so safe, they will not be driving us because if safety is driving us, that means fear is driving us, and we're going to fall right into the self-reliant trap. Sometimes our craving for self-protection can overpower His excellent work in our lives. The cross of Christ is the most profound testimony of the safe-good dynamic. The Jews saw the cross as a stumbling block. Well, that's not safe. And the Greeks saw the cross of Christ as foolishness. That's not safe. From God's perspective, the cross was wisdom and it is power, and those two things are absolutely good. The point here is that sometimes the safest path is not necessarily the best, and this was the mistake that Mabel was making in the beginning. She looked at Mary and Beth as the path to least resistance because, well, she doesn't have to wait any longer to find a boyfriend, which is one of the things that she said. And if she broke up the relationship, she did not know if another boy would ever come along, as she said. She also said she didn't know how long it would take that another boy would come along. And then she said that what would others say if we break it off at this point? She was looking down the safest path. And so the safest path in her wisdom, which was not wisdom at all, was to go down the path rather than trusting in the goodness of God that He is communicating to you and He's letting you to know that you need to pull up. You need to call this off. Your gut instinct is saying that this is not right. That's not a safe path, but if you truly believe in the goodness of God, then you know that this is the best path, even though there will be uh, some ruffles along the way as you make this transition by breaking off the relationship. She did not break it off. She went down the safe path because, as we have looked at in previous chapters, she did not believe that God was good. She really didn't have an understanding of the goodness of God, and so she had fallen completely into a self-reliant spirit, relying on herself rather than God because she felt like she could accomplish what God would not. In those moments, we have to understand and believe that God is good and He is working good in us. Like the baker kneading the dough, our great God works His desires in us to make us vessels fit for His use. When entering the crucible of suffering, my appeal to Mabel was to make copious mental notes of what He is doing. You are in it now, Mabel. You are stabilized in Christ, but that stability can start to 
waffle. And so you want to pay attention to what God is doing in you. And then as you go out with the advancement of the gospel, specifically in Biff's life, you do want to understand and you want to continue to talk to God about what you need to be doing and how you need to stabilize yourself in the gospel as you communicate it to your husband. And so I want her to embrace the suffering. And by embracing the suffering, she will embrace God who is working the suffering into her life. It's similar to Christ as he asked for the cup to be taken away from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But ultimately, he embraced the Father's work in his life when he said, Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted to his Father. He embraced the suffering. He believed in the good purposes of the Father. When we stop resisting our Father's work in our lives and start believing in Him, there is hope for change in us. However, accepting the crucible of suffering does not mean that our adversity will pass. And you intuitively know this as Mabel accepts this new reestablished relationship in God as soon as she goes out and starts advancing the gospel in Biff's life, there's going to be adversity. There will always be adversity, uh, but this is God's continued good work in our lives because the adversity brings us back to who God is and what he can do in us and through us rather than us tripping up and falling into that self-reliant spirit. In Mabel's case, it simply means that she needs to trust the steady hand of God who is working for her good regardless of the consequences. Now, trusting God does not mean things are going to turn out as she hoped. Biff may never repent. Biff may always stay addicted to porn. But our motive is the gospel, not pragmatics. Our motive is to honor God, not for some hope-filled, predetermined result. If Mabel's motivation is, I'm going to do all this if Biff changes, then her motives are wrong. But if her motives are tied into the gospel, then she is free in Christ, and she won't be manipulated or controlled by whatever Biff does or does not do. Christ embraced the will of his Father, Guess what? Later, he was crucified on the cross. Joseph embraced God's will, and his life involved one disappointment after another. Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Paul believed in God, and he was beheaded. Peter followed his Savior to his crucifixion, to Peter's crucifixion. Trusting God during adversity reveals a desire to know and follow God regardless of the path or the outcome. Though you may not know the outcome of God's good work in your life, you can rest knowing that you will be more than satisfied because you have relinquished your rights in Him. Therefore, you are truly free in Christ. And so in this chapter 7, and it's called Working on Your Marriage Alone, there are two ideas that I have been juxtaposing. One is our freedom in Christ, which must be firmly and practically established. This is what Paul was experiencing in jail. He was free in Christ, as the implication of the text would conclude. 
And out of that freedom was the advancement of the gospel. So he did not see his suffering as something that would impede God's work in his life. He saw his suffering as the necessary thing to cause God's work in his life, the advancement of the gospel. And so Mabel needs to know that the crucible of her suffering, the crucible that she's in, working on this marriage alone, is not going to impede God's work at all. If anything, it will cause, it will magnify God's work and cause it to advance in even a more uh, efficacious and profound way. And so she wants to make sure that she's resting in the freedom of the gospel and then trusting Him to do that good work of gospel in advancement. This is chapter 7, Working on Marriage Alone. It's a part of the booklet, Help, My Marriage Has Grown Cold. I shared the story earlier that Mabel goes by another name, but she came walking up to me at a conference with the softbound copy in her hand, and she said, God has used this book to change my life and my marriage. And thus, I dedicated this book to her. I want you to, to Mabel, and I want you to go to the store and get your downloaded copy, and please let other people know about it as well. As I wrap up chapter 7, Working on Your Marriage Alone, I have a question set for you. And again, I've been asking questions throughout because I really want folks to be able to think about it reflectively and to apply it practically. Question number one, how do you define good from your perspective? I trust your perspective is a God-centered one, but if not, that's where your starting point is, and that will have to do. And so how do you define good from your perspective? Would you give an illustration of something that happened to you that aligns with your definition? And so have an illustration that aligns with your definition. I just want you to be clear of, of what good is in your view that you can actually affirm by something good that has happened to you illustratively. Number two, how would you define good from God's perspective? Now, perhaps this is the same. Your definition and his definition is the same. If not, would you illustrate something good, but our culture would not see it as such? Because God's interpretation is good, is not as narrow as the culture, is not as one-sided as the culture, and I trust your definition is not either. Sometimes a thorn in the flesh can be good. Sometimes the cross of Christ can be good. We celebrate it virtually every Sunday, and we understand what we mean by good. It was a horrible event. Uh, suffering is, a, is an awful thing for anybody, uh, for it happened to anyone, but we know that God is greater than our suffering. We know that God can, can take something that's evil and flip it into something that is very good. And so the question is, how would you define good from God's perspective? And would you use an illustration, something from your life where the culture would say that makes no sense, but you know it makes perfect sense in God's economy? Question number three why is it sometimes hard to accept God's view of goodness? Now, this would be a good discussion question with a friend. I would love it if you brought it up, said, hey, and of course you can explain the context and so forth, but why is it sometimes hard to accept God's view of goodness? I think we all know the answer, and it would be great to discuss that with someone. Number four, talk about a time when something bad happened to you, but you now see how it was a good thing in your life. This ministry, in many ways, was 
was born out of the worst thing that has ever happened to me, which was the losing of my wife and our children. It was a devastating event many, many uh, years ago, several decades ago, and it was unbelievably horrendous. I have actually have written about it in this book called Suffering Well. So I'm not going to articulate that here, but uh, if you haven't read Suffering Well, I would, it's autobiographical, and I would encourage you to read it. Many people have, and they've benefited from it, but that is an exact illustration of something that was horrifically bad, but now I see it as one of the best things that's ever happened but not the neatest thing, because when bad things happen, there are unneat repercussions that never resolve. And so I'm very much aware uh, that everything hasn't been tidied up, but I'm also very aware that God has done uh, some redempt, some amazingly redemptive things through that horrific event. Chapter 7, working on marriage alone. We must be free in Christ as we advance the gospel. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.